Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Exodus 32. As I alluded to before, this is one of the, uh, this section, which is really a unit, 32 to 34, uh, we'll be looking at the next three weeks, is, is one of the most referred to sections of the Old Testament throughout the scriptures. We've already seen it in Psalm 103, Psalm uh, 106, you see it in Deuteronomy 6, uh, Acts 7, 1 Corinthians 10, as we saw. I mean, just over and over and over again, literally hundreds of times throughout the scriptures. So uh, it, it's something that we really want to pay attention to uh, and God invites us to uh, connect our own stories to the story of the people of Israel. You remember Moses is up on the mountain receiving all of the instructions for the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, everything we've been talking about the last few weeks. Meanwhile, down in the valley, this is what is happening. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, the calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. And they rose early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to pray. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We'll stop there for now. I'll pick up the rest of the scripture reading as we go. I wonder, uh, you know, I've been thinking about these things for the last couple of weeks, and it's just such a heavy passage. Uh, as we go to prayer, maybe in an attitude of, of humbling our, our bodies, uh, as we humble our hearts, you just take your seats, and if you will, I, I'm going to kneel to pray right now and certainly would invite you to do that right where you are. I know that may be different or uncomfortable for some of you, but as you're comfortable, just take a seat if you want to join me in kneeling as we pray for God to meet us. God, as we come to this passage today, a, a passage that you have repeatedly called us out to remember, to pay attention to, to, to look at, to apply to our own lives, we pray that you would help us to do that. Holy Spirit, we, we need the vision that only you can provide. Um, Father, we, we know that we are, are so like these Israelites. We are so prone to forget who you are. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember today, 
guide us uh, through the course of this Scripture. Be with the one who speaks. We, we pray that you alone uh, would be our focus, that you alone would get the glory, and that our hearts would be turned to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the characteristics of our age, if you read various social commentators, is the tendency that we have to forget. One writer puts it this way, we are an age that has a ruthless forgetting of the authority of the past. Uh, Philip Reif uh, calls forgetfulness one of the hallmarks of our current culture. It is not simply that society just happens to be anti-historical in the way that it approaches history, but, they go on to say, uh, we actually have a vested interest in the actual erasure of history of those things that conjure up unpleasant ideas that may disrupt the happiness of the present. There's something really, I think, uncomfortably true and profound about that. Uh, we, we want to move past so easily those things that may bring up unpleasantness or disrupt our current happiness. Certainly, this story uh, would do that for God's people, for Israel. Uh, what we see here is, is just a, a blatant forgetting of a God who just, you know, in the space of a hundred days, I mean, literally, when Moses goes up to the mountain, uh, it's 59 days after they've been led out of the land of Egypt. He's up there for 40 days, so we're talking about a total of 99 days. 99 days after they saw, you know, God do all of those wondrous works, uh, they forget and they slip into this, uh, these wanton cravings, as Psalm 106 called it, uh, this idolatry in the desert, and we'll talk a little bit more about it as we go. But this story is preserved for us because of what we sang, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God wants us to see the past that we can so easily connect to. God wants us to see sort of the trepidatious nature of our own hearts in order that we might day by day freshly appropriate His grace, in order that we might experience His presence. This whole section, I mean, what we've called this series is God in our midst. It's, it's about living in the presence of God, or putting it this way, it's about God being in our presence. And we're going to see next week uh, just how much uh, at jeopardy that was for the people of Israel. But God wants us to see, He wants us to appreciate and appropriate His kindness, even as we recognize uh, the frailty of our own hearts. I've been thinking about you, me, 
uh, and, and just, you know, some of the ways in which this kind of thing lands in our life. You know, there, there are certainly those who perhaps are involved in all kinds of idolatry, wickedness that, that you are unaware of and, and maybe unconcerned about. I mean, you, you're just living your life for you and uh, get it while you can mentality moving forward. Uh, this is the kind of passage that really is meant to arrest you. You know, God, John Newton talks about uh, God stopping him in his wild career as he talks about his own life of being a slave trader and experiencing the amazing grace of God. And maybe for some of you, that's how this passage is going to function. Others of you are very aware of your own sin. I, I, I know that. I, I talk to you. Uh, it, it is a heavy, heavy burden for you, and it, it's difficult for you to really even experience the grace of God. You know, part of the reason why we have Exodus 32 to 34 is not to undermine our sin. God wants us to see it. He wants us to recognize it. But He also wants us to move through it to the cross. He wants us to move through it uh, to Jesus and appropriate Him freshly. And so today, and especially over the next few weeks as we complete this sort of triad, uh, we're, we're going to be aware that for those of you who are really weighted down by your own sin, uh, that there is grace and kindness in the person of God. Thirdly, and, and maybe this is the most common sort of category of people, is that we're a mixture yeah, we are a mixture of, of sensitivity. You know, there are sins that God has made us very aware of. You, you have those uh, besetting sins that you just are so frustrated about. That's why I have no hair. You know, you just pull out your hair over and over and over again because these, these things just wait at your heart. But then there are other areas of your life which you are completely unaware uh, you have slipped into idolatry, and you are uh, living in a way that, uh, that offends a, a holy God. And, and so, maybe that's the most category, uh, the most common category of people. I think God has a word for every single person as we walk through this. I've given you a little bit of the outline, uh, 32 to 34. This week, we're going to be focusing on the people and their sin. Next week, we're going to be focusing on Moses as the intercessor, the intermediary. And then the next week, we're going to be focusing on the God who graciously uh, intervenes. So it's really a set. You've got to come for all three. Uh, or it's... Uh, but each one, obviously, will stand alone as well. So let's look at the, the people and their sin. And, and as we do this, know that this is given to us because it is such a picture. It is so paradigmatic. It is such a, a, a pattern for God's people throughout the ages. When we look at the Israelites, though the circumstances are different, we're not out in the wilderness, uh, very few of us have actually fashioned an idol. Uh, the, the pattern that they follow is so similar to the patterns of our own heart. So we're going to be making application from the desert to our own, our own situations as we go throughout 
The first thing that I want you to recognize, and you see we have five points. That doesn't mean it's going to be, you know, 40% longer than the normal sermon. Uh, But uh, five things to observe from this passage. The first is this, how quickly we forget God. I've already sort of mentioned this to you. It's been a mere hundred days, three months since they've been out of Egypt. I mean, they've seen God literally do some of the most amazing things in history. They have watched Yahweh topple the world's superpower so that a slave nation uh, could be led out of Egypt. And already, Uh, already, because Moses is gone now for 40 days and they haven't seen the one who is emblematic of their deliverance, uh, they forget. They they forget God. This is the the testimony of, of Psalm 106. This is the call of Psalm 103. Forget not the Lord. How quickly they forget. And lest we think that uh, this is something that is uh, particular to the Israelites alone, let us just consider our own hearts. I mean, how quickly we forget. We can be in a worship service. We can be filled with the singing of songs. We can be filled with repentance. We can be filled with God's Word, and we can walk out. And it doesn't even take us 99 days. Within 99 seconds... Within 99 seconds, we are gossiping, we're slandering. Uh, Within 99 seconds, we uh, are right back to the things that fill our pleasure meters. Uh, We move away from God so quickly, it is because our hearts, they they just have this entropy towards ourself. They have this moving away from the God, you know, Jeremiah, the, God talks about this through Jeremiah. My people have committed two evils. They have forgotten me. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. You know, you just think about it. a year ago, you were freaking out uh, because of the pandemic. You were freaking out because of your job security, because of a relationship. You were freaking out over housing things. I don't know exactly what you were freaking out about, but a year ago you were freaking out and God came through and and God answered your prayer. And, And now you're back in a situation and what are you doing? You're freaking out again. Because we forget, we forget that God is good, and we find ourselves quickly turning away from God. The Israelites quickly, and God, you know, highlights that for Moses as he says, go down for the people have you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves, they've turned aside quickly, verse 8, out of the way that I commanded them. The ink was not even dry. Secondly, they not only forget God, but in terms of Jeremiah, that the second thing, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Uh, they've fashioned idols uh, to Uh, you know, in some ways replace God, in other ways, as we'll see in just a minute, come alongside God. Uh, But our our hearts so quickly turn away from God and so easily turn to God's substitutes, turn to idolatry. That's, That's what idolatry is. You know, we think about Old Testament idolatry and we think about this golden calf, this idol. Um, But idolatry is is any way, 
in which we, we want to substitute for God. Uh, so, idols can be very good things uh, that God gives us. It can be our gifts, our talents. It can be the finances that God gives us. It can be, um, it can be our relationships. It can be our family. I mean, we, we have an uh, unlimited capacity to turn anything good into an idol. Uh, and, and we see that here with the Israelites as they move forward. They, they take God's good gifts uh, they take the gold, the silver. You remember when they came out of Egypt, God gave them the plunder of the Egyptians. So the, the world superpower with all of their wealth and all of their goodness, God transferred that uh, to the Israelites. Uh, and, and God called them, you remember in Exodus 25, uh, when he is talking to Moses, he says, go to the people of Israel and, and ask them to give from their hearts to build the tabernacle in order that I might dwell in their midst. Well, the people give from their hearts, all right, but they give from their hearts in order to build this idol. You know, it's one of the things, detective stories, it's always follow the money. Uh, here, if you follow the ornaments, you know, God says, give from your hearts for me, for the presence, the people give from their hearts in order to get something that they can see and something that they can uh, tangibly believe in. Because this Moses, he's gone, this, this God, even though they could see God on the mountain, the thunderings and the lightning, <coughs> they weren't experiencing that closeness. And so, they, they needed an idol, something to communicate God to them. And they took the very gifts that God had given them. They took the very gifts that God had said, give these to me so that we could, uh, I can dwell in your midst. And they used them to fashion this idol. One commentator says, an idolater is not one who has never known God, but one who having known God refuses to glorify him or devises some substitute in life for the praise and glory and worship that belong to God. This is something that we are so prone to. A couple of areas where we are, are prone to idolatry, security and significance. You just think about those as broad categories, not original to me, David Paulson, Tim Keller. Lots of people have talked about uh, idols in, in these categories. Uh, security and significance. Security, you know, what, what is it as we go forward that we are basing our hope on? Is it our family? Is it our home? Is it our bank account? Is it all of these things? Where am I getting my security from? Is it my ability? Is it my intellect? All of the, is it, is it these things? Where am I getting my security? My significance uh, on the other side, and, and some people struggle with, with different ones, like who am I? What's my identity? Again, we look to all of these same sorts of things, our, our bank account, our gifts, our, our intellect. We, we want to gain our significance through these things. And, and Yahweh says, I, I alone, when I dwell in your midst, I am your security. I am your significance. Don't forsake me for a broken cistern that cannot hold water. Don't forsake me for a graven image uh, that, that, that points to uh, gods of Egypt. You know, the, the people were, were still 
worshiping. You saw that in Psalm 106. While they were in Egypt, they had forsaken God. They were worshiping these false gods, and they wanted to bring that in. And that's probably the second thing I want to highlight for you here. Idolatry, you know, first of all, we take the gifts that God gives us. We use them to, uh, we use them for our own our own security and significance. But secondly, notice how Aaron sort of baptizes this. Uh, verse 5 uh, of chapter 32, when he sees this calf and he sees the people ready to worship it, he builds an altar. Uh, it's an altar to Yahweh, and he proclaims that we're going to have a feast. So the picture is the calf in the background and the altar to Yahweh in, in the foreground. And, and Aaron says, okay, we can do both. We, we can do both. Let's, let's hedge our bets because we don't know what's happening to Moses. You know, maybe Moses is gone. Maybe this whole Yahweh experiment is over. In that case, we've got Aphis, you know, the, the, the Egyptian cattle god who incidentally Yahweh had just slew all of the cattle of Egypt, you know, in part of the plagues. Uh, but we've got Aphis. You know, or if Moses comes back, we have Yahweh. We, we like to split our ticket, right? Uh, we like to vote both Democrat and Republican. We, we like to have it. We do it all the time. You know, we, we think about, you know, you think about Psalm 103, uh, who heals all your diseases, who, uh, you know, who gives you all of these benefits. And yet, you know, when, when we are ill, uh, we, we pray, but the prayer is, you know, we're going to leave this to God's hand, but then we're also going to seek the very best medical care. Now, I, it's not wrong to do that. Don't hear what I'm not saying with regards to that, but it's where our hearts are. Yeah, you know, is our heart truly set on the Lord as our great physician, or are we believing in that guy from the Cleveland Clinic? Or are we believing in it because he's from Mayo? You know, what, what is it that we are really trusting in? Uh, it's an issue of the heart. Or sometimes it goes the other way. We hedge our bets this way. You're living in Egypt. You're, you're hedonistically worshiping the gods uh, of the land. You're, you're not connected to Yahweh at all. But you're going to show up for church occasionally, just in case. You're going to pray occasionally, just in case. You're going to give to the poor. You're going to, you know, endorse this social justice uh, campaign, just in case. Just in case. And that's what we see Aaron here leads the people into this split allegiance. It's a divided heart. And part of what God wants us to see, to recognize, is that he wants our whole heart. You know, the undivided heart, that is what it means to, to worship, to, to surrender to Him. Now again, I know that this is where we struggle, and, and hang with us here as we go through. God is gracious. Uh, he recognizes that we are frail. He remembers that we are dust. Uh, but the warning is here. Because you remember what it said in, in 1 Corinthians 10, and this is really my third point with regards to the second sub-point. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, he says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, a direct quote from our passage today. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Uh, What is going on here is that they return to pagan religion. Uh, and they rise up to play. There are definitely sexual overtones connected with that language. And, and what is going on here is very similar to what goes on later again in Numbers 25. Uh, there is a wanton craving. Remember, those are the words from Psalm 106 that is taking place in the wilderness. And, and this is what Moses hears as he comes down the mountain. Uh, he sees that, that your base desires, when you attempt to hedge your bets, when we go with a, with a divided heart, it eventually leads us away from Yahweh altogether. Uh, when, when, we, when we seek to have a little Yahweh and a little Egypt, we pretty much find ourselves in Egypt before long. And, and this is what Paul this is what God, this through the Holy Spirit, is saying, look, remember, don't forget, it is unpleasant, it is difficult to think about these things, but it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that helps us to see these things. And again, this goes on and on and on. Paul, in talking uh, to the Philippians, he, he says, don't become like these, for their God is their belly. Uh, you know, these desires, the base desires, they're always lurking. The, the, the natural man, if you like that language, is always lurking, ready to overtake. But God says, give me your undivided heart. The next thing I want to highlight for you is just how slippery our hearts can be in owning our sin. If you want to look with me at verses 21 to 24, they're printed for you. Moses comes down the mountain. He indeed finds this, you know, massive, uh, you know, conflagration of sin uh, that is going on uh, somehow in the name of Yahweh. Uh, and, And he comes to Aaron, who is his brother, and he left in charge of the people. Joshua went halfway up the mountain with, Aaron, with Moses, and he waited there. Uh, so Aaron was the one that is in charge. Aaron was the one who, you remember, in Exodus 24, had seen the vision of God. After the covenant was sealed, you know, Aaron and Moses and some of the others, they were brought up and saw this heavenly vision. So Aaron was given charge of the people, and God, or Moses comes to him and he says, Aaron, what are you doing? Here are the words. What did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin on them? Now, Moses gives to Aaron some responsibility here. What did they do that you, we're going to talk about leadership next week and, and the importance of, of leadership, uh, but, but God thinks in those terms that you've brought such a great sin upon them. Now, these two verses here, are uh, three verses, are, are really, really uh, windows into our hearts, right? How, how slippery our hearts can become in owning our sin. Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. 
For they said to me, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Uh, you know, Aaron here uh, does two of the, the most sort of famous judo moves that, that we all do when faced with the prospect of our own sin. I'm sure that you can pick them out. Number one, he blame shifts. You know, these people who you've given me, these people, they needed this. They did that. And you can see there's even some implicit blame for Moses here. You know, we, you left. We didn't know how long you were coming back. You didn't leave us a message. You didn't communicate. If you had communicated, this all wouldn't have happened. You know, so he, he blame shifts the people and implicitly blame shifts Moses, uh, the circumstances that they were in. He, he wanted to blame his failure to lead his willingness to go along with this idolatry to even promote this idea. He wanted to blame it on others and their circumstances. And then the second thing that he does is he victimizes. You know, it's just like, this just happened. You know, I threw this into the fire and out came this calf. I mean, I don't know what happened, uh, but here, here's where we are. And Brothers and sisters, I, I mean, I, I've been living with this passage for two weeks, and, and I have been so convicted just over and over and over again at how often I see my heart go in this direction. Do you see it in yourself, or am I the only one? <laughs> I mean, we, we so want to, you know, leave over the responsibility for our sin. We want to blame it on the pandemic. We want to blame it on our spouse or our kids or uh, on our situation. We want to blame it on our boss. We want to talk about like, you know, yeah, I, I know I, I've been struggling with alcohol, but I, I just didn't, I don't know how it happened. It was just 10 beers all of a sudden. Uh, you know, these types of things, we, we, use these, we use these excuses. Our hearts are so slippery in, in owning sin. Philip Brooks, uh, who is a, a, a preacher, he, he has a sermon called The Fire and the Calf, and he, he says there, let me refuse and I think these are such good words. Let me refuse to listen for one moment to any voice which would make my sins less mine. It is the only honest and hopeful way, the only way to know and to be ourselves. When we have done that, when we've listened, uh, you know, when we've made our sins our own, then we are ready for the gospel ready for all that Christ wants to show us that we may become and for all the powerful grace that he wants to display in our lives. You know, let us refuse to listen for a moment to any voice that would make our sin less our own. A wise word as we see Aaron. But before we get to the grace, I want you to notice the consequences, because the consequences here are very real. Let me read for you, uh, beginning 
uh, around, well, beginning in verse 15. It's printed for you there in your bulletin as well. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, a noise of war in the camp, uh, but he, but Moses, wait a minute, sorry. Uh, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to uh, Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. So remember, Joshua is waiting halfway down the mountain for Moses. They hear this, but Moses says, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Let me just pause there for a second. These tablets uh, have been highlighted. You remember Addison highlighted those toward the end of the passage last week in 31. Here we're told again, verse 16, you know, these are the tablets that were written on with the very finger of God. Can I just put this in, in terms that we might understand? If you have something that God literally wrote on, you have the most valuable thing ever in the history of the world, right? I mean, think about a, a jersey that LeBron signs. I mean, how much does that go for? Now you have something that was written with the very finger of God. These are, these are literally the most valuable artifacts that have ever existed in the history of the world. And when Moses brings these down the mountain and he sees the sin of the people, he breaks them. And he was right to do so. This is not Moses acting in rash anger. This is Moses symbolizing the value of, of the relationship that has been broken, symbolizing that the people have broken their part of the covenant with God. This is Moses symbolizing that this is what they deserve. They are law breakers, and they deserve the wrath of God. He goes on, uh, takes the calf that they had made, burns it with fire, grounds it in powder, scatters it on the water, and makes the people drink it. What a picture it is of the bitterness of our sin, right? You know, and, and, and many of you know this. I mean, we, we, we worship these idols, but they don't satisfy us. I mean, you've been through your college days when it was hedonism and it was drinking and it was, you know, pursuing this relationship, that relationship. How many of you were really fulfilled during those days? It just doesn't happen. You know, we, we pursue money. I, I know some incredibly, incredibly wealthy people, and I also know that they are not fulfilled in their in their money, in their goods, in their, in their services. There's always something more. You know, look at Bezos and the other guy that are trying to get to space. I mean, they, it's just competition, right? Outdoing one another because I got to get one step farther than the other guy. It, it doesn't fulfill. It's that bitterness. And as Moses grinds up this idol, it, it's a picture of you want to worship this? This is what it's going to taste like. And then he goes on, verse 30, uh, 
Well, actually, verse 25, Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. One of the very real consequences, we're, we're on sort of our third consequence here. The first consequence is we break our relationship with God. The second consequence is uh, that we taste the bitterness of our false worship. The third consequence is we, we bring derision on God. Uh, as, as Moses it comes down here and, and he sees his people, he says, you are supposed to be priests. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. You're supposed to be pointing the nations to God, but now you're just making a laughingstock out of yourself and out of God. You're, you're, bringing, you're bringing shame upon yourself and upon God. Uh, he, he makes... Uh, making derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and he said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. That's actually only three words in Hebrew. It's a very abrupt uh, sort of, you know, who, God, me. You know, it's like very, he is a very stern call that he has given to the people of Israel. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate through the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained, you've been set apart. It's not the way we normally think of ordination, right? For the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you all this day. Listen, there, there is no way to make this palatable, easy. Uh, you, there, there is God's judgment that, that comes into the midst of the Israelite, and the Levites carry out the task of, of, of killing 3,000 people that day. Now, there are some things, I think, that put this in perspective. It, it's not easy, uh, but we can put it in perspective. You know, one, there's no indication that the Levites were perfect, you know, that they were not uh, participating in the, the sin. In fact, we're, we're told that all the people brought their ornaments, you know. So, so the Levites were a people that recognized where they were and came forward, and, and God was merciful to them. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Secondly, 3,000 is a lot of people, uh, but we're told in numbers that 600,000 men came out of Egypt. Uh, so, you know, some scholars say that that's in excess of two million people. Two million people, we're told all of them were engaged in this. 3,000 is a very minuscule number. We're told sec thirdly, fourthly, whatever, they went from gate to gate. Uh, what's the significance of the gate? You know, that's where the leaders sat. Uh, and, and there's some evidence here that, that God took people who were most responsible uh, for leading the people into sin. Uh, they were unwilling, you know, they went from gate to gate. Either they were the ones that sat in leadership or the gate told them these were the leaders and these are the ones who are unrepentant in the face of Moses' return. So again, this doesn't make it, it, it doesn't diminish the fact that 3,000 people died, 
but it does help us get some perspective. The, the next thing that I would just say about this is that this is not simply an Old Testament kind of idea or notion. You know, there, when we come to the New Testament, Paul very clearly says the wages of sin is death. You know, but the gift of God is eternal life. Uh, we, we see over and over, Jesus is the one who talks about the punishment where, you know, our, our spirit goes into the place of unquenchable fire where the worm dieth not. You know, Jesus is the one that talks about this. In, in Revelation chapter 14, we, we see the picture of those who are in the presence of God being consumed. So, this is not just an Old Testament idea that somehow Somehow, God of the Old Testament was this vengeful God, but the God of the New Testament is this loving, you know, all-compassionate God. How is it that we, we get to that place? Here's the last thing. I think part of it is because in the New Testament, we see so clearly the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes together. God's wrath and God's mercy comes together in the person of Jesus Christ. So we, we understand that we will, not, we will not experience the sword of the Levites because Jesus experienced the forsakenness of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you poured out your wrath upon me? Jesus did that so that we did not have to. But we have a foretaste of that even here in the Old Testament, uh, in this passage. And we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. But notice Aaron. You know, God, Moses has been up on the mountain. God has been laying out his plan for him. And he has said, I want Aaron to be my high priest. I want Aaron to be the one who goes into the Holy of Holies. I want Aaron to be the one who is going to make sacrifices for Israel. And now Moses comes down from the mountain, and Aaron's making sacrifices, all right. But God does not despise Aaron. God redeems Aaron. God atones for Aaron's sins. Aaron wears the high priestly robes. Aaron goes into the Holy of Holies and makes sacrifices on behalf of his people. Aaron is the one who will point to the Lamb, the mediator. God is so gracious. We're going to see in Exodus 34, he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He does not you know, acquit the guilty, visits the iniquity of the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generation, but he shows mercy to thousands of those who keep his commandments. I think it's John Calvin that says when we read, when we meet God in Exodus 34, we see a God whose mercy so overwhelms his judgment, or so, uh, so colors it that we realize the compassionate heart of God. And if you need a picture of it, just think about Aaron. Brothers and sisters, we've talked about a lot. Uh, and, and my prayer is, is that God will, will use this in your heart and in your life uh, as a kindness, that you might experience the presence of God in a deeper way. It is only when we see 
when we see the depths uh, of, of how slippery our hearts can be, that we can appreciate the, the bounty of God's grace. God's grace shines brighter because of what we see in Exodus 32. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for what it means. It, it is a hard word, Lord. We, we certainly recognize that. We pray that uh, you would be all of our delight, that the places where we are tempted to um, compromise, the places where we are tempted to uh, forsake you altogether, the idols that we are tempted to look to as replacements for you. Father, may we see the, the emptiness of that and may we come again uh, on our knees with our hearts in our hands saying, my heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so through the person of Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.